Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Welcome you uh, once again. My name is Joe. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to be worshiping with you. And again, we are turning to James 5 this morning. So after a month or so break from our walk through the letter of James, we are returning to the New Testament letter of James. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5 this morning. Now, if you're like me, you probably need a little bit of a reminder about James and about his letter. And so first, let's just talk by way of reminder about James himself. James himself. So James had a mom named Mary and dad named Joseph. Those two names sound familiar. It's James was the brother of Jesus. He shared a bedroom with the Lord Jesus. Uh, and this, to me, is more than just interesting Bible trivia. It speaks powerfully of at least two things. Number one, the radical grace that Jesus brings because... James rejected Jesus in his ministry. If you were to look at, John, at the Gospel of John, chapter 7, you would see that the, the brothers of Jesus rejected him. But the Apostle Paul tells us something interesting. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus sought James out. And he didn't give up on him. And so James was restored. And so I just want to say, you may feel unworthy of Jesus. You may feel unlovable to the Lord. But James, just the very witness of James, tells a different story. The second thing about James and being kind of half-brother of Jesus, his status there, it speaks not just of his radical grace, Jesus, but also the radical transformation that Jesus can bring into your life. Because you would expect James, in his ministry, to advertise his close ties with King Jesus. Like, you would expect him to say something like, hey, I am the, the brother of Jesus, or hey, I am sort of prince to the king, you know? He could have said that, and it would have indeed garnered him a lot of attention. But what does he call himself in chapter 1, verse 1? He calls himself the servant, or the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James, the brother of Jesus, stands on the same exact footing as you and as me. A sinner saved by the Lord Jesus. And that is just by itself, without even diving into his letter, encouraging. But now let's talk about his letter. So first of all, by way of reminder, this is a letter, but it's more than a letter. Remember, we've been calling it a sermon letter. James was one of the first pastors in Christian history, and his congregation in Jerusalem was tragically scattered because of persecution, religious persecution against Jesus' followers. And we're going to get into some of that today, actually, so stay tuned. But what James does in this sermon letter is he seeks a way to encourage his congregation when they could not gather in person. Does that sound familiar? And so that's what we have. We have sort of an ancient sermon live stream, maybe. But the second thing about this letter, this sermon letter, is it gives us insight into the roots of our faith. So when we read about the earliest Jesus followers, for instance, in the book of Acts, we hear about some of their practices. They gathered, they prayed, they ate together, but we don't really know what they were concerned about. We don't really get an inside look into the real like issues that they were wrestling with as people. Like These are people that James is writing to, people like you and me. What are they wrestling with? Well, by reading this sermon, we get an insight into uh, their lives, into their struggles. This is our roots, in other words. And it's quite encouraging. Scholars actually tell us that James is the earliest written Christian document that we have. This is our roots. The third thing about this letter I want to remind us about 
is that this sermon letter gives us insight into the struggles of the faith. So I mentioned before that we see some of the details of what they are wrestling with, and we do see that in this letter. They were experiencing, these first Jesus followers, they were experiencing extreme trial and hardship. Life was hard as a brand new Christ follower. The first generation church we now know, because of James, had trials. Have you ever heard testimonies from Christians that make it sound like the minute they embraced Jesus, life just got a lot easier for them? Well, that isn't a testimony that the Bible itself even recognizes. I mean, Jesus himself said, when you follow me, you will receive trials. You will experience trials. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't offer real hope. It doesn't mean that Jesus, as we heard last week, uh, life clicks with him, that he gives us a surprising joy, that we can even taste eternal life in the present. That does, All of that is true. And oftentimes, as we follow Jesus and walk in his narrow path, life gets hard. Life gets difficult. There are trials to endure. And we see some of these in this sermon. So chapter 5 is a really good example because we're about to read two chapters, or I'm sorry, two paragraphs in chapter 5. And in this section, we are going to see James wear two hats. He's going to be wearing a prophet hat, and he's going to be wearing a pastor hat. So in the first paragraph, James is going to be wearing a prophet hat. He denounces, to put it mildly, in prophetic ways, individuals outside the church that were persecuting those inside of the church. Like a prophet would in the Old Testament. And then in the second paragraph, James is going to put on a pastor hat, and he's going to address believers inside of the church. And we know this because his language changes. He starts calling them brothers and sisters in the second paragraph. And so he shifts from those outside the church persecuting his church to those who are inside the church, the recipients, those being oppressed. And he offers them counsel, and he offers them comfort, because they were experiencing profound economic injustice, from their employers, they were profound, profound religious persecution, and he wants to comfort them. In other words, these suffering Christians are asking Pastor James to make sense of things, and they start following King Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, but suddenly that means they're being robbed, in some cases like murdered. We're going to talk about what that looked like. And so James lets them know how God feels about their oppressors. And at the same time, that's his prophet hat. And then at the same time, he puts on his pastor hat and he says, I want to help you respond. I want to help frame what you're experiencing and how to best respond in a way that honors the Lord Jesus whom you're following. And so I want to just read both of these paragraphs with you. And I want to see what God has in store for us as a church this morning. Will you read with me? This is again James chapter 5, starting verse 1. This is God's word. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are mothy. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how... The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no no. 
so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And this is your word. And in Christ, we stand in solidarity with those who are in James' church and all who went before and after. And by the same Spirit that unites us to you, Jesus, would you empower this moment of your word going forth so that we would be softened by it, Lord, that we would be challenged by it in ways you would have us challenged, that we would be comforted by it in ways you would have us comfort, Lord. Have your way, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so my wife, Josie, and I have been married for about 16 years, and so that means we were first dating about 20 years ago, which is hard to believe. Um, and in those days, um, I really wanted to impress her. I still want to impress her. Who doesn't? But uh, I was wanting to show her how serious I was about our dating relationship. So I bought tickets to an off-Broadway show all the way in Indianapolis. And I thought it would be really cool to make this a surprise for her. To just sort of say, you know, hey, we're going somewhere far away. I might tell you where. It's going to be cool. I like you a lot. <laughs> okay? That was my goal. Now, I'll say this. Surprises are super fun for the surpriser uh, because they know what's coming. Uh, but let's not forget that the other person is in the dark. Now, some of you like that. Uh, okay, but that's not everybody, we'll say. And so it's hard for the person in the dark to know how to prepare. Can I get an amen? And it's hard for that person to know how to prepare. And as I recall, my wife, Josie, at the time, had all kinds of legitimate questions about where we're going and uh, questions that remained unanswered to her. And so let's just say, looking back, I think I probably should have just told her exactly where we were going so that she could prepare. That's free advice. Um, that way she could pro properly prepare. Well, here's the reality. When we know where we're going, we can prepare. And that's not just true dates, but all of life. Think about the last trip that you've been on. This summer, if you were with us, I talked about packing for a vacation and how when we pack for a vacation, what do we do? We envision where we're going. In fact, our three boys went on a trip down to Cincinnati this weekend, and I said, verbatim to my oldest, I said, imagine what you'll be up to in these next coming days, and then pack accordingly. Just imagine what you'll be up to, and then you won't forget anything. Just walk through the days sort of in your mind and in your imagination, and then you will indeed pack accordingly. And that's what we all do. We sort of think about the future. We create a, a vision of that future what the weather is going to be like, what, uh, what, what we hope to do, and then we plan accordingly, we pack accordingly. So at Hope, we have a saying, we like the saying, our vision for the future sets our agenda for today, which is this dynamic at play, but in our relationship with the Lord. And unlike me, 20 years ago, the Lord actually tells us where we're going. <laughs> so that's good. Uh, the Bible tells the true story of the world. And we're all caught up in the story that isn't finished yet. And while we don't have every single detail of what's to come, the Lord does give what scholar N.T. Wright calls signposts. Signposts, or previews of what's to come. So we're not given everything in complete detail, but we're given enough to pack. We're given enough to prepare. We're given enough details about that future to know how to live today. You know, the Lord doesn't drag his people on one big surprise date. Because God actually wants his people to be prepared, to make their daily decisions in light of his promised future. So fancy theologians have a phrase for this. They call it eschatological ethics, which is a mouthful. But all it means is we basically, as believers, as Jesus followers, we make our decisions on a daily basis in light of where we're headed. In light of God's future that he tells us about. Eschatological ethics. It's interesting. 
Everybody does this, by the way, not just Christ followers. Everybody makes their daily decisions in light of where they think they're heading. So, for instance, if our life is just a flash in the pan, like a biological flurry of activity, and then eternal nothingness on the other side, if that is what we think is where we are heading, then it makes sense, doesn't it, to squeeze as much pleasure as you can out of life, or to acquire as much possessions as possible in this life, or to acquire the highest level of power in this life. If that's, if that's where we're heading, that's how we'll pack. We're simply living in light of our future, nothingness. But in this passage that we just read, James reminds us that Jesus' followers have a future vision that is very, very different than just nothingness. The tomorrow that shapes our today is what James calls the coming of the Lord, verse 7. The coming of the Lord. The Greek word that he uses here is parousia. Say that with me. Parousia. That's good. So if you made dinner plans with a friend in those days where you were speaking this language, you would say, hey, I look forward to your parousia. Which is to say, I look forward to your coming. I look forward to your arrival. Your appearing. Can't wait, you would say, for your parousia. And this future event is no secret in the New Testament. In fact, one scholar says it's referenced nearly 300 times, this coming of the Lord. It's all over in the New Testament. It's as if God wants to be clear about something with his people so that they, why, will know how to live in light of it. So that they'll know how to pack. So that they'll know how to prepare. So that they'll know how to make their decisions today. And so what I want to do, just before we dig into James's text... Is I just want to gather the facts about this parousia that we get in all of these references in the New Testament. So this is just basically a 101 coming of the Lord lesson. Sunday school. You ready? Number one, we know it's going to happen. Remember all those references. Number two, we don't know when it's going to happen. The New Testament, and even James here, has a sense of expectancy like it could happen any moment, uh, but no exact day or time. In fact, Jesus himself, in his ministry, couldn't give his disciples an exact date and time, but he told them to be prepared as if it were going to happen soon. So that's what we know. Number three, we know that his coming will bring resurrection and restoration. So at his parousia, we will be raised in body, not metaphorically, but actually. And the universe itself will experience a renewal, a resurrection of sorts itself, what the Bible calls a new heaven and new earth. Not a brand new heaven and new earth, but a renewed heaven and earth. Our future is, in other words, not a disembodied kind of floating around in the spirit world, but a very earthy, new earthy experience to be exact. What God made, we broke, Jesus restores. Many of you like to restore old things, old furniture, old instruments. And make them more beautiful. That's exactly what we see. The parousia brings that restoration. Okay? The coming of the Lord brings that renewal, brings that resurrection, brings that longed for renewal. That's number three. Number four, another thing we know about the coming of the Lord is it will bring judgment. I mean, we confess with the Apostles' Creed, He will come again to, do you remember? To judge the living and the dead. He will come again to judge the living and dead. So for those in Christ, wrapped in Christ, this is not an eternal judgment and condemnation, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it is a judgment of sorts for what we put our hands to in this life. Remember Paul, when we were walking through 1 Corinthians, says that there is a fire that searches out the things that we do in this life. That fire doesn't hit us in our eternal souls as it relates to our relationship to God for eternity, but it can touch our works. So we know that's true. That his coming will bring a judgment. 
And for those in Christ, it's not an eternal judgment. For those outside of Christ, it is. And I want you to hear how one scholar puts this. Quote, when Jesus comes again, we will appear before his judgment seat. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And he goes on, what is in question for those in Christ is not our salvation, but our reward. And so that's just a parousia one-on-one. It is going to happen. We don't know when. It'll bring restoration and renewal, and it'll also bring judgment. And I just want us to notice how in this passage that we just read, both paragraphs, both the prophet hat and the pastor hat, are deeply connected to and find their anchor point in this coming of the Lord. Everything James says this morning finds its force and its meaning in the parousia, the coming of the Lord. Let me just look again. James prophetically rails against the oppressor with what? With the coming of the Lord. As the poet George Herbert puts it, wealth for them will not provide one dram of comfort when he comes. Or as a more contemporary poet puts it, hard rain is going to fall. But equally, James connects his pastoral comfort in the second paragraph to the oppressed with that same parousia, with that same coming of the Lord. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so in this passage, James shows us how to live in light of the future. And in particular, James calls us to a kind of patience. And I think this passage warns us against two versions of false patience and encourages us towards a true patience. A parousia-informed patience. But I want to look at the two false versions first before we get into what James is offering here. The first wrong way to live is what we could call anti-patience. Anti-patience. This is when we live with no regard for the future coming of the Lord. You know, this, isn't, this is an anti-patience because it's not just the absence of patience, but it's actually the opposite of patience. You're living, as it were, as if there wasn't the coming of the Lord. And I want to show how anti-patience breeds two things that James calls out in this passage. The first is injustice. And anti-patience is a breeding ground, is fertile soil for deep injustice. So when we gather the facts from this passage, a picture emerges. So look at the first paragraph again. First, the picture is this, that there were folks who were not just wealthy, but folks who hoarded their wealth. So see verses 2 through 3 there. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. You have so much you're not even using it, is the implication. And your gold and silver, which supposedly is uncorrodable, is corroding. Which is to say, even our most valuable things in life, in relationship to the coming of the Lord, are diminished, are corroded. So they were hoarding their wealth, verses 2 and 3. They were indulging in their wealth, see verse 5. You spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire, and you fattened yourselves on the day of slaughter. It appears they also grew their wealth unjustly. Look at verse 4. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord's Armies. So that by the time we get to verse 6, you have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you, or the righteous one who does not resist you. We see that these folks were essentially condemning and murdering believers. Now, historians have helped fill in this picture for me a little bit more. It appears to me that James may not even be hyperbolic about this murdering business because it's likely that wealthy landowners, now follow this with your mind, and it's not hard if you just think about American history to imagine this scenario in ancient history. 
Wealthy landowners in Palestine were taking indebted small farmers to court, taking their land, and then hiring them as sharecroppers. And when they refused to pay their wages, because back in those days, as we know from the parables of Jesus, you depended on getting your wage that day. You worked that day, and then you got paid that day. Give us this day our daily bread. And so if your landlord was not paying you what you worked for, then there's a very real sense that you were now in debt. In those days, you don't declare bankruptcy. You go to debtor's prison. And once you go to debtor's prison, I'm just like history tells us, you stay in debtor's prison. And so it's very likely that most folks who went to debtor's prison unjustly never came out. They died there. Thus, James's language about condemning, which is a judge word, it's a courtroom word. They were taking these believers to court and murdering these believers who were dying in debtor's prison. And James says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I mean, how could they resist? They had no material wealth, no power, no legal recourse. And if James comes across angry in this passage, it's because he is. Because these are folks in his church, and his anger would be what God calls a righteous anger. Because it aligns with the heart of God. I mean, this passage feels harsh, and it feels surprising. But it won't be harsh or surprising it wouldn't be if you're familiar with, let's say, the rest of the Bible, because we see this all the time. You know, the prophets, to be sure, but even the beloved Psalms sound a lot like James. I read Psalm 72 this past weekend. I'll just read verses 12 through 14 for you. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy, and he will rescue them. He will redeem them from oppression and violence. For their lives are precious to him. That could very well be a commentary on what James is saying in real time. And James is telling us the same thing. God hears this injustice and he will deal with it. At the parousia, the coming of the Lord. But the injustice continues because the oppressors are only living, quote, on the earth, as James puts it. They have an anti-patience. They're not living, these oppressors, as if there is an accounting for what they're doing. Years ago, I read in a book called The Reason for God about the Polish poet and critic Czechoslav Milos. So Milos lived through the Nazi occupation of Poland, where he was from during World War II. His life was threatened as an adult when he wouldn't pledge allegiance to Stalin. So that he had to kind of hide for his life in France for a while as an exile, and then he eventually came to live and then to teach in America, Czechoslovak Milos. So he saw and he experienced profound evil, and then as a poet, he reflected deeply on evil. Well, in 1998, he wrote a piece for the New York Times called The Discreet Charms of Nihilism. And nihilism, again, is a fancy word for living at, with anti-patience. Living as if there is no coming of the Lord. Living as if there is a nothingness on uh, when we die. And he says, quote, religion used to be the opium of the people or the drugs of the people. To those suffering humiliation, pain, illness, or serfdom, religion promised the reward of an afterlife. And the idea here was that it's kind of like made them content in their profound oppressed state because, well, at least there's an afterlife. Well, here's what he says. But now we are witnessing a transformation. A true opium of the people is the belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace or comfort of thinking that for our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice, our murders, we are not going to be judged. What Milos is saying here, and what the reason for God, this book I reference, points to, is that living for today is fertile soil for all kinds of power and justices. What Milos was saying is that it's quite convenient that there is no afterlife if you're Hitler and Stalin. Because you can do whatever power gives you without any accounting. With no parousia, people get away with anything. And anti-patience breeds injustice, okay? And anti-patience also breeds 
Number two, something else James wants to work against, and that is retaliation. Retaliation. It is fertile ground for injustice for those who have power and abuse it. It removes any sense of what we do today matters eternally. And that's very dangerous. But James points out this other form of anti-patience we're calling retaliation. So just look at verse 7. When he shifts his focus away from the oppressors in his day toward the oppressed, towards his people, towards the church who are suffering this, he says in verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. We see this shift because in verse 1 of, of chapter 5, he's addressing you rich and calling them out like a prophet. And now he's shifting his tone. He refers to his people, my brothers and sisters, and he tells them not to retaliate with violence, but to be patient for God to make it right. I mean, what is being spoken of in the second paragraph of chapter 5 is actually quite, quite counterintuitive and radical. He tells them not to retaliate with violence, he says, but be patient for the coming of the Lord. It's interesting. New Testament uh, historian and scholar Scott McKnight points out that it's likely that there are folks in his church that are tempted toward violent retaliation against those wealthy landowners. And, and Scott McKnight makes this point. He's like, you know, we don't like to imagine that because that's, you know, offends our sensibilities in the comfortable West and all. But he's like, hello, have you ever heard of the Zealots? They were a thing around Jesus' ministry. What did they want to do? They wanted to violently overthrow their oppressive uh, regime, the Roman Empire. Okay, so it's very likely uh, that there were folks that are tempted toward ballot retaliation. In fact, this is exactly what those zealots were about those days. And remember, James condemns the sin of murder in chapter 2. He's talking to the church. And so James may not be exaggerating for effect when he talks about this. He is pastorally urging his congregants against a retaliation. And James is not alone, by the way. The Apostle Paul also pastors his church in the same way. And so listen to what he says to the Roman church in chapter 12 of Romans. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, quote, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul says, to the contrary, instead of executing vengeance, Paul says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so what? James is saying, and what Paul is saying, essentially is to persecuted Christians, don't play by their rules. That's what retaliation does. It creates a cycle of evil. And Jesus, in his ministry, stops this world history cycle of retaliation on the cross. And James seems to point to this in verse 6, the righteous one is condemned and murdered. And in a sense, I think James is talking about those in his church who have done nothing to deserve it, what one scholar calls undeserved suffering. And in one sense, they are righteous and they are condemned and they do not resist because they have nothing to resist with. In another sense, I think James is talking about his brother. Born of the Virgin Mary, adopted into their family by the good name Joseph. Who lived and died on a cross. The righteous one. The only righteous one. Truly righteous. Who was condemned unjustly. And who hung on the cross for things he did not deserve. Unearned suffering. But instead of retaliating, the righteous one did not resist. And in his non-resistance, Jesus did not lose. But he won. He exposed and shamed the powers that be. That put him on that cross. And defeated them in his resurrection. 
persecuted Christians, James is saying, must do the same. We reject the false path of violent retaliation. That is a form of anti-patience. You are neglecting the sure coming of the Lord who, as Paul says, will bring vengeance and will make things right perfectly. And so there's two sort of forms of anti-patience, depending on how much power you have and in what capacity uh, the oppression is happening. So to those who are oppressing, to those who are, um, who are harming others, there's an anti-patience that says, what I'm doing is fine, it's okay, whatever. I can get away with it. And there's an anti-patience to those who are being harmed that says, I'm going to execute retaliation. And James says no to both of these things. And that's the first kind of uh, false path that we see in this passage. The second warning is against what we could call passive patience. So if that was active patience, let's talk now just briefly about passive patience. So anti-patience denies the coming of the Lord. Passive patience acknowledges the coming of the Lord, but it renders us, us passive. God's people just do nothing. They roll over in the face, let's say, of injustice or oppression or hardship because Jesus is coming back after all. What can we do? Well, James makes sure that his people do not get that impression. And so he does this with three images of patience in verses 7 through 12. The first is the image of the farmer. A farmer is not passive, even as the farmer waits. They're patient. Number one, in their humility, they realize they can't cause growth. And we see James pull that out. Be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains to fall. They can't control that. And they eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. They can't control that. So they're humble, knowing that God brings the harvest. So that's, that's them being patient for the coming of the Lord, James says. But they are not passive, are they? Because farmers are hardworking. They're humble, but it doesn't mean they're passive. They work, they observe, they optimize. They plant, they till, they prune. Their patience is very active. I started a garden in my backyard around the time my middle son was born, which means about 10 or so years ago. And uh, do you want to see that garden today? Yeah? Okay, well, it doesn't exist. <laughs> the remnants of that garden is kind of in our yard because it's like clover everywhere. Because what happened is I didn't tend it. What happened was I was passive. I just put a few seeds in there, and I was like, we're going to have this killer square foot garden, according to this book. And it's going to look awesome. And I'm going to feel great. It'd be like Wendell Berry out there, like, you know, tilling the ground. And, you know, that's all I did. I waited. I was passive. I just planted seeds and I stood back. But that's not a farmer's patience. Planting seeds and standing back is not a farmer's patience. And neither is it the patience that James tells these oppressed Christians to have. The next image he gives is the prophet. The prophet is not passive. Verse 10, take a look. This is a model of patience for, for James. Now, consider the life of any prophet you know about. Be it Isaiah, Jeremiah, you name it. Is passive the word that comes to mind when you consider the life of that prophet? No. They spoke. They suffered the consequences. They pled and they bled. And that's the patience that James is calling for the church. Job is another image that he gives Job's, we see this in chapter 11. And say what you will about Job. One word I would never use to describe Job is passive. Job wrestled with God. He wailed. He sought answers. He often stepped over the line. He was anything but passive. But James uses him as an illustration for steadfastness. Why? Because even in all that messiness, Job still remained trusting in the Lord. And even when Job is rebuked, as it were, and humbled by God, Job's response is humility. But he's anything but passive. So right away we see that the parousia of Jesus calls for patience. But it cannot be an anti-patience. It cannot be a passive patience. What is it then? Well, a lot of of scholars would say an active patience. And I like the word dynamic patience. 
And that's how we're going to end our time this morning by considering dynamic patience and what that looks like in light of what we're just reading. So dynamic patience begins with a firm trust in the coming of the Lord. We anchor ourselves in that future event. But instead of rolling over or sticking our head in the sand or running for the hills uh, when injustice or persecution comes, we engage in dynamic patience. What does James teach us about dynamic patience in this passage? Number one, dynamic patience means that we will search our hearts. The coming of the Lord means that we will be constantly searching our hearts. When we read verses 1 through 6, and instead, instead of saying, Phew, I am glad that I am not a, a, a land-owning Palestinian uh, persecuting poor Christians in the first century A.D., I'm glad I'm off the hook on this passage. I'm glad James is not addressing me. What we do with a dynamic patience if we are in the Lord is we say, how am I just like these landlords? How could I be in a way comfortable with my riches, power, wealth, influence in a way that is harming others? And it is not in the Lord. And if James, by, by condemning with a prophetic voice these folks in this letter, if he's showing us the heartbeat of God, then we ought to search our heart and ask, how can this be a mirror to align my heart and my practices with the, with the heartbeat of the Lord? We, we look at verses 1 through 6 and we ask the Lord, how can I grow in greater conformity to your heart with my stuff? in my positions, in my possessions. And we don't do this to condemn because we're in Christ where there is no, condem no condemnation, but we do this in order to grow in our love and obedience to God. That's a dynamic patience in the coming of the Lord. We don't just sort of throw our hands up and say, hey, he's coming, whatever. No, we actually dynamically engage our hearts. Number two, we settle our hearts. Dynamic patience means we settle our hearts in the coming of the Lord. To use James' words, we establish our hearts with the sure coming of the Lord. This word establish actually is the same word used about Jesus when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. We're going to be talking about this actually in a few weeks. Jesus in his ministry sets or establishes himself toward the cross. In other words, Jesus is settling into this reality that is a non-negotiable. Going to the cross is a non-negotiable. And what Jesus does is he simply settles into the non-negotiable. He establishes himself in it. Same with Christians in hardship. We establish our hearts in the one sort of reliable fact of life. That Jesus is coming again to make things right. And this requires an active, dynamic renewal of trust and commitment. That's a dynamic patience. Dynamic patience number three means that we speak from our hearts. So we don't just settle our hearts, but we speak. So again, James compares uh, the Christian to the prophets who have patience. And what prophets did is they did, they did some foretelling, which is sort of talking about what's to come. But most of the time they did what's called foretelling. When we hear the word prophet, I think immediately in our culture we think uh, fortune teller. But honestly, if you read the prophets in the Bible, what you're going to discover real quick is that they're not really telling the future so much as they're forth-telling. They're telling forth the word of God to people in the present. And yes, they talk about promises of God that will happen in the future. They talk about future things. But they're forth-telling quite a bit. They spoke forth truth against injustices and evil that were going on in front of their eyes. They didn't just say, well, God's going to make this right someday, whatevs. I better just hang out. Let's just stay quiet. No, they spoke. That's what prophets did. And that's, by the way, exactly how verse 12 relates to this passage. When James is saying, hey, Christians, don't sort of uh, make vows. And, and there's a little bit of background in this because what they were probably tempted to do in those days, you can make oaths. And if you made an oath, uh, it, in a way, it sort of lessened your commitment to whatever you were, called, you were uh, making an oath to do. And James is saying, you know, these Christians were probably forced to make oaths about their debts, promises they couldn't keep. Yeah, I promise to their landlord, I'm going to pay you next time. And James is essentially saying in this passage, 
Like, don't do that. Don't make promises you can't keep. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. In other words, keep the integrity of your words. Just like the prophets. Our speech matters. James says, do this. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And dynamic patience means that we actively and truthfully use our words, even as we wait for Jesus to make things right. Like the prophets. I think fourthly, dynamic patience means we struggle in our faith. That's Job. James says, consider the patience of Job. And we can say a couple things about Job. He never jumped ship. He always stayed engaged with God. But number two, this man was messy. But when Job is is sort of corrected by God, Job humbles himself. He remains sensitive and even submissive to God. And he, even as he struggled in ways he did not earn. This is dynamic patience. The coming of the Lord does not create passivity. It creates a dynamic waiting. Like the prophets. Like Job. And yes, like the true and perfect prophet. And yes, like the true and perfect Job. Jesus. Jesus engaged evil and oppression. He engaged it. His cross. His non-retaliation was anything but passive. But profoundly dynamic. His clothes, if you can remember the Mount of Olives, were saturated in blood at the thought. But he joyfully entrusted himself to the story. And in the end, was vindicated. And so are all in Christ. That is a dynamic patience. On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we would do well, I think, to reflect on the dynamic patience of the civil rights movement in America. Which was largely a Christ-centered and cross-informed movement. Cross-informed movement in the history of America. So Dr. Micah Edmondson, he recently taught me a lot about the dynamic patience, we'll say, of Martin Luther King Jr. He says, quote, Dr. Edmondson, says, quote, you see in the Garden of Gethsemane a number of responses to suffering. One is a passive acquiescence where many of the apostles bleed. Another is violent retaliation where Peter responds with violence. But Jesus as the Messiah gave a distinct revelation of God's intention for us to engage our suffering, not through violent retaliation or passive acquiescence, but through nonviolent or agapic engagement, an active, loving, self-sacrificial engagement with suffering in order to expose injustice and ultimately end it. He goes on to say, quote, Jesus was not crucified in a corner. He makes a spectacle of these principalities of injustice, of evil, of wickedness. He exposes it and in that way brings an end to it. And that's dynamic patience. The Lord and so we're called to as well. We wait for the coming of the Lord to make things right. In the meantime, we wait. I think this image to close out here does two things. I ought to do two things. It's a warning in a way. It's also a wooing. It's a loving warning for what's at stake. The justice of Jesus in his return is a warning for both the haves and the have-nots in this, have-nots in this passage. He says, don't Don't sort of, um, even to those who have not in his church, he's saying, don't you dare turn to each other and start fighting with each other and taking it out on each other. And he connects that to the judgment of Jesus. And so what James is trying to do is he's trying to say, hey, this is a loving warning, knowing where our story is going. If you're tempted to retaliate and take things out on each other, or if you're a have, which is most of us, we're guilty of defacing the image of God in Jesus' flock and others. And both parties receive a loving warning from, from Jesus, from the Lord. The day of the Lord. Stand at the door. But it's also a wooing. It's not just a warning, it's a wooing. Now, we will not show dynamic patience if we are on the side of the oppressed unless we see the mercy and compassion of God that flows in abundance, which, which James refers to here. Who did, not res- you know, who did not resist when our sin crucified him. 
And we will not show dynamic change in how we steward or use our wealth and possessions unless we are wooed by the same compassion and mercy of God. It's this kindness that leads us to deep life change or repentance. The righteous one who did not resist when our sins crucified him, as one writer puts it, the judge is our own loving, caring Savior. And our constant thought should be how we can delight in him as his coming, in his coming by having something of eternal lasting value by his feet. There's a delight in considering that day. Because as it's been said, the judge became judged. Jesus on the cross. The righteous one not resist. So we can rest. We can wait that day for him to return. So Lord, we do that. We ask that you would grant us a dynamic patience that searches our hearts and enables us to wait on you and not take matters into our own hands. But Lord, that patience, would it be dynamic? Would it be one that actively engages injustices we see around the world at this moment, the persecutions we see against your people, those we receive ourselves? Lord, with the dynamic patience, the same patience creating us a humility and a willingness to search ways in which you are calling us to steward our material possessions, our position in society, our influence, our power, in ways that make others flourish and doesn't diminish others. So Lord, we ask and bring all this to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, the righteous one. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.